Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and today we have finally got the promised interview with Cory Doctorow. And I've been talking about this for a while because the whole Apple slash Epic battle has been in the news. It's been all over the news. And uh, the person I immediately thought of that would be perfect to talk to about this was Corey, and we finally got him on the show today. And I, you know, I don't usually talk about economic theory, but as we'll find out in this series of uh, two, uh, this two-part interview, uh, it really affects everything. And there's been such a weird shift in how markets work with regard to technology due to, in particular, one key law that was passed in 1998. And we're going to talk about that today. But if you've ever wondered why back in the early 1900s, how we were somehow able to bust all the trusts, in other words, break up all the big monopolies of the day, but for some reason we don't seem to be doing that today, uh, well, we're going to find out today as we talk about the history and how we got to this point. And these market dynamics affect security and privacy as well. These are features that very often are not things that are directly sold uh, as features. Uh, so if you want these things, we have to be able to gravitate towards products and services that have security and privacy and avoid those that don't. But if the market is tilted in such a way that we don't really have choice, uh, then we're all screwed. So we will get into that day with Corey. Uh, I do want to define a few terms, uh, as is common with some interviews, we start riffing on tech and start throwing out some terms that some of you might not be uh, aware of. So I just wanted to really quickly define a few things that you're going to hear today. Uh, so you'll know what we're talking about because we don't stop to define them. First, a couple services you may or may not have heard of Tumblr. You've probably heard of, uh, it's, it's a little social media app, uh, where you can, it's kind of like a micro blogging app. Uh, it, it, you know, it's somewhat popular. And then there's another one we talk about called Mastodon, and it's really not very popular, uh, though I wish it were. It's basically a Twitter replacement uh, that respects privacy. Uh, I use it. I don't use it often. I don't use it often enough, but it's at least an attempt having a privacy-focused Twitter-like service. So we, we throw those terms out. He also talks about an SOC. Uh, that's short for System on a Chip. And all of our cool little electronic gadgets today, um, all our little IOT devices in particular are computers. And because they're so small and because they're so focused, the companies have come along to create systems on a chip, which like throws in all the main things you need for a little computerized device onto a single chip, which has revolutionized our tech lives today. So anyway, we talk about an SOC. That's where that comes from. In nearly the same breath, we talk about Linux distros or distributions uh, and a little toolbox called BusyBox. Uh, these are all, again, this is all kind of geared toward tiny little embedded software devices, IoT in particular, that run entire computer operating systems. Uh, and then the Linux open source system is very popular for this. And BusyBox is like a Swiss army knife for Linux, little Linux distros like this that lets programmers... Uh, do some really cool stuff. So we throw those terms out and don't define them. And finally, we talk about the Stripe payment system. You may not have heard of it, uh, but you've seen it. Uh, if you've ever been to like a festival or, or some little vendor on the street selling something and he whips out his cell phone with a little nugget attached and swipes your credit card through it, uh, there's a high likelihood that that is Stripe or something like Stripe. It's a service that lets people collect 
credit card payments, basically. Uh, it's also popular on the web. The other thing we kind of mentioned it briefly, and I don't know if we ever really get into it much because we kind of spend more time talking about the the App Store and the whole dynamics of the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. Um, but Epic is a really big company, a big gaming company, and they make billions of dollars a year. Uh, they even make billions on a single game called Fortnite. Uh, you've probably heard it. If you don't know what it is, though, it's, it's actually a free game. Uh, it's very popular on mobile devices, and they basically make all their money selling virtual clothing accessories and dance moves. Yeah, I know it sounds weird. It's hard to believe that's a billion dollar business, but it is. So you can play the game for free, but if you want to do a really cool victory dance when you win, or if you want to have a really cool outfit while you're doing it, uh, you pay money for that. And apparently that it's a really lucrative market. Fortnite is what they call a battle Royale game, which is kind of like the hunger games. If you've ever seen the movie or read the books, you know, it's a bunch of players all kind of thrown into some interesting environment where the last person standing wins. Anyway, it's been extremely popular. And because of that popularity, Epic has thrown its weight around and is trying to upend Apple's 30% cut of every game and every purchase made through their app store. So anyway, that is the subject of my interview with Corey, and we will get to that just shortly. I will warn you, there is a little bit of minor cursing in this episode, uh, as well as the next one, but I think we're all adults here. I think we'll get through it just fine. But, you know, fair warning, if that's not your thing, then maybe this is an episode, I hate to say it, but you might want to skip. And just real quick, a couple of news items before we get into the interview. First of all, the book giveaway is almost over. You only have six days left to enter. Uh, there will be 15 winners, so a lot of winners, a lot of chances to win. And just by being, by virtue of being a listener to this podcast, you will get two extra entries. And if you're a subscriber to the newsletter, you get three. I may have that backwards. But you get extra entries for doing these other things, so you can kind of stuff the ballot box. Um, but as far as new, news items, uh, there will be a new show after this uh, pair of interview shows because there's lots to cover, and some of it can't wait. So I want to make sure you know there's a nasty Windows bug out right now called Zero Login. Uh, this would be especially uh, problematic for businesses that have a Windows uh, computer network. Uh, if you have not taken the August update for Windows, you definitely need to make sure that gets done. There's actively people exploiting this right now, so be sure to keep your Windows uh, up to date. And also be on the wear for iPhone uh, texting scams. Uh, I've got one just today, and I read an article about this too. So beware of them. They'll come in. They'll look. May, they may look really re legit. They may be their surveys. Maybe they're telling you, you know, click here to accept a package or you know, whatever. They, there's all sorts of ways they can get you to uh, to click on something, but don't click. Just delete it. So those those are quick news tips. Uh, we'll dig into some more of that deeply in the new show in a couple weeks. But for now, let's get right to it. Let's get to our interview with Corey Doctorow from the EFF. All right, Corey Doctorow is a science fiction author, activist, and journalist. He's an author of many, many books. And just, uh, just to name a few... Uh, radicalized and Walk Away, where science fiction for adults, uh, in real life, a graphic novel, uh, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, a book about earning a living in the internet age, and Homeland, uh, a young adult sequel to The Little Brother, both of which I've read and really enjoyed. Welcome back to the show, Corey. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be back on. And, it, let, and let's pick up with that real quick. So it, you've got another book coming out called uh, Attack Surface, what, uh, and that's a, what the caps off the, a trilogy? Well, not really, because the first two are young adult novels, and one is a sequel to the other, so it's Little Brother and Homeland. Mm -hmm. And this is a third book in the universe, but it's a standalone book intended for adults, 
Mm. It has a different main character. The protagonist of this one is Masha, who appears at the beginning and the end of the other two. And she's a surveillance contractor. So in book one, she's working for the DHS. In book two, she's working for Beltway Bandits, private military contractors. And now in book three, we meet her and she's working for something a little like the NSO group or Palantir. Mm. And her job is um, helping autocrats catch and break up pro-democracy movements in the former Soviet Union. And she kind of has a moral reckoning. That's what the book is about. She, She ends up... First, first assuaging her conscience by secretly helping the people she's spying on defeat the surveillance gear she's installing. And that is the kind of self-destructive thing that people are really conflicted to do. And it, it blows up the way that you would expect. And she ends up running away under pretty bad circumstances and ends up home in San Francisco where her childhood best friend is a Black Lives Matter activist who is, to her horror, being targeted by the exact same cyber weapons she spent her career building. And she has to deal with this kind of, the, the, the fact that she can't outrun the moral consequences of the choices that she made when she took this technology that she fell in love with because it gave her more power and it allowed her to project her will around the world. And she used those skills that she developed out of that love affair to take away other people's power and to put them under other people's control. Where where have I heard some of those themes before? It's like it's almost like it's <laughs> it's happening. Yeah, well, you know, I wrote it in the midst of things like the Google walkout, where twenty thousand Googlers mm. walked out, and you know, Amazon and Microsoft tech workers having these uh, protests over facial recognition, and you know, it, it's the 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 funny thing about tech is that. Uh, there are certain jobs in the tech industry that are under so much demand that if someone refuses to build a thing, it might not ever get built. And, you know, this is like, in some ways, it's analogous to where nukes were in the 40s during mm. the Manhattan Project, where, you know, Oppenheimer, you know, he was a strange character and all, but he was very brilliant. And he was the rare physicist who could also be a manager. And, you know, if he hadn't run the Manhattan Project, there might not have been a bomb. And, you know, he regretted it for the rest of his life. He got involved in anti-nuclear proliferation. When he was summoned before the president for a congratulatory meeting, he told the president that he felt he had blood on his hands and got thrown out of the Oval Office. And the president Mm. said, don't ever let that son of a bitch back in my office. (laughs) And, you know, my, my hope is that, like, because narratives, because stories are these kind of emotional fly throughs of of like a render of what a technology might feel like or a situation might feel like, my hope is to create some like early onset Oppenheimers, mm. you know, people who, people who, who have that, who like rehearse the moral reckoning and decide that they want to, that the, the short term pain of, of telling their bosses no and maybe losing their job and having to find another one, given that their skills are in demand is less than the, the long-term pain of going to their deathbed like Oppenheimer yeah. full of regrets for what you did in the world. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's an interesting dynamic because I mean certainly it's no invisible hand of the market I and mean, that's what's causing a lot of this the desire to make more and more money and finding new ways to monetize these kind of, you know, AI and the one that seems to be working is when the employees actually stand up. Yeah, yeah, it turns out that like I won't build it is a, is a thing that people can say that there isn't like this great historical force bending us towards a thing. There's just people making choices. And, you know, like I, people sometimes ask me if I'm an optimist or a pessimist and I'm, I'm neither of those because those are fatalistic views that suggest that history is like running on rails. Right. And whatever we do doesn't matter because you're either an optimist and it'll be fine or a pessimist and it won't. And instead I'm someone who believes in the power of human agency that like, if we do stuff, the future changes. 
I'm used to seeing you on crapon.com. You've been there forever. It's been, I think, your main website. But uh, now you're on pluralist.net. What's uh, that's newish? Uh, well, what's, yeah, what's that about? Pluralistic.net. Yeah, I left. I left Boing Boing in January and decided I wanted to try some solo stuff and I wanted to build out a daily blog that hewed to the things that I loved about blogging. So I blogged on Boing Boing for 19 years to the day. Wow. Uh, so pretty much as long as blogging had existed. <laughs> and before that, I, I had, you know, personal sites where I would write up daily links and, and I had a magazine column in the Sci-Fi mm-hmm. Channel's magazine writing up monthly links. And, you know, so like I'd been at it for a long time. And what I loved about it was this kind of idiosyncratic personal connection and the idea that it was a personal publication that audiences came to rather than something that um, you built in order to make a metric go up, to make an analytic mm-hmm. score go up. And I had my largest following on Twitter, but Twitter has lots of problems. And the biggest one is that I don't own it, right? That, <laughs> that if Twitter decides they don't like me, they can kick me off. And in fact, they did at one point for a while when people would troll me. I would just add them to a list with a name like, you know, uh, cryptocurrency dimball puckster or, you know, like a a gravy eating Confederate homeboy or whatever, right? Like just, 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 you know, these kind of insulting words. And one of them was colossal assholes. Excuse me if you need to bleep that. I don't know if you get that clean language one. And that got me kicked off Twitter. Oh, right? wow. Adding someone to a list called Colossal Assholes got me kicked off Twitter. So, you know, I, I wanted to own my own thing. So I said, how can I have a thing? that meets people where they are, which is in these silos owned by giant corporations that not only do a bad job uh, moderating, but could never do a good job moderating. Because, you know, the problem with Facebook is not merely that Mark Zuckerberg is like uniquely unsuited to be in charge of the social lives of 2.6 billion people. It's that there's like no one on earth, no one in the history of the human race whoever was suited to have that job. Now, like, let's not lose track of the fact that he's very bad at it, even by median (laughs) human standards, but no one would be good at it. And, And so what can I do to meet people where they are in these terrible silos that I'm not happy about? and bring them somewhere else. And so I, I decided I would write everything as a Twitter thread. And uh, then I would um, convert those Twitter threads every day into a single blog post. So like a like a, the day's news with a mm-hmm. table of contents and, you know, incidental stuff about talks that are coming up and whatever, uh, what book I'm reading, like that kind of live journal stuff, what mm-hmm. I'm reading right now, what, what my mood is, you know, how many words I wrote today. Um, and that I would also turn it into a newsletter. And that the blog and the newsletter would be like a stock WordPress install with no tracking turned on, no analytics, logs rotated every 24 hours. And the newsletter would just be a mailman instance. No no analytics, nothing. No uh, open, no red receipt, no embeds. Plain, plain ASCII, nothing else. And then I would also mirror it to Mastodon. Mm-hmm. And I would mirror it to Tumblr. And it would also obviously originate on Twitter. And once a day, I would do an anthology tweet thread on Twitter that would be a summary of each of the day's threads in a Hmm. thread itself. So you could just start at the, like, if you go to my pinned tweet on any given day, you can see all the things that I posted the last time I kind of froze an edition. And so the idea is that there are these permalinks that live on a server that I control. And there are ways to get this that are less surveillant and less controlled than the silo that you met me in. Hmm. But I am there in that silo talking to you about why you might want to leave until you're ready to go. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I'll leave it to you to come up with something like that. that that's a cool idea. Um, oh, thank you. 
Okay, so I've, I've, been, I've been promising that my audience that we're going to talk about this Apple and uh, Epic thing for a long time. Was I was like, sure. I, when the first came up a while ago, yeah, like, I was like, you know, you know who I really need to talk to about this was Cory Doctorow. So anyway, I've been teasing this for a while. So let, let's get into that. But before, okay, let, let's let's catch up. Let's do a little bit of history first because Apple's not the first person to pioneer this whole thirty percent distributor cut thing. So, like, where did that start? Where, who, who started the whole vig for uh, distributing software? Well, I don't know who the very first one was, but certainly like the console market pioneered it. And, you know, if you go back even before the console market, you will find Edison reels and Edison discs that say this this disc is only to be played on the matching hardware, right? Hmm. That, that like, I made the record, I get to tell you whose record player you're allowed to use. Uh, and doing otherwise is a patent violation. Wow. Now, there's a difference though, right? So the early consoles and and, of course, those record albums... They were limited by a couple of things. First, they, they uh, well, especially the records were not self re- self enforcing. So, uh, the record couldn't tell what record player it was on. Mm-hmm. And so, if you could find another record player that had the correct spindle and the right RPM, you could drop a stylus on the record and play it. And there was just nothing the Edison company could do. Um, early consoles, of course did have technical countermeasures, what today we would call DRM. What they didn't have until 1998 was a legal right to prevent people mm-hmm. from circumventing them. And in 1998, the, the U.S. Congress passed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And Section 1201 of that act, is it's a poorly understood and unbelievably important part of the law <laughs> because it says that breaking DRM is illegal and telling someone how to break DRM or trafficking in DRM breaking tools is a felony, punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine Mm. for a first offense. (laughs) And this is the really crucial part. It is still an offense, even if the the circumvention, the the bypassing of the DRM, has no connection to a copyright infringement. All you need to do is bypass a lock that has a copyrighted work behind it, an access control to a copyrighted work, and the bypassing of the lock irrespective of whether a copyright infringement ever takes place, is itself a crime. And the reason this becomes such a, an important law in the years that follow is uh, embedded software. Because embedded software is a copyrighted work. Hmm. And any device with embedded software that has an access control can only be used legally in ways that don't involve bypassing the access control. And if there's a thing that you want to do that would otherwise be legal like, say, fix your own John Deere tractor or attach your own insulin pump to your Abbott Labs continuous glucose monitor or replace the uh, monitor on a Medtronic's ventilator, their workhorse ventilators that are the best-selling models in the world. Because there is a digital lock, because there's an access control, and because all of those have embedded software, doing those activities is a literal felony. And you can go to prison for giving someone the tools to do it. Isn't that Doctor's first law? Yeah, yeah. Anytime someone puts a lock on something that belongs to you and won't give you the key, it's not for your benefit, for sure. But this is this is beyond that. This is felony contempt of business model, right? This is a way to convert the preferences of shareholders into a legal obligation that binds competitors, right? So I can't make a a competing replacement monitor for your Medtronic ventilator that binds customers as the customer i can't opt into another app store or choose to run a homebrew game on my console that wasn't signed by your signing key 
And also critics, because if you're a security researcher Mm -hmm. and you discover a defect in one of these devices, if your proof of concept code or your disclosure of the defect reveals a flaw in the DRM, you can go to jail. Mm. And so what company would not want to be able to exert control over their customers, their critics, and their competitors, right? So, so this stuff is proliferated. It's metastasized. It's in every kind of device now, you know, tractors and heart monitors, like that's crazy, right? That, that we have a law that was invented to force you to buy Sega Dreamcast discs that had come off Sega's official press where they took like a VIG on every disc that was pressed, even if they never sold. So mm-hmm. the games publishers had to pay Sega before they'd sold a single unit and Sega got paid regardless of whether any units ever sold, right? Like that's a nice little grift too, if you right? Get it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, but that tawdry little grift <laughs> has turned into a law that says that if you're in the midst of a pandemic and the authorized service personnel for your ventilator cannot get on an airplane and fly over and fix that ventilator, that people just have to be left to die even if you have an engineer who knows how to fix it, even if they have a circumvention device that lets them fix it. Because there was a, a Polish technician who trained as a Medtronic technician and he kept a copy of the signing key, I guess, or the unlock device. Yeah. And he cloned it and he's building them into old lamps and guitar pedals and mailing them <laughs> to American ventilator technicians uh-huh. so they can sync the monitors with the, with the ventilators to keep their ventilators working, right? He's committing felonies right well he's doing it in poland which is bound by the european copyright european union copyright directive from 2001 which also bans this under Mm -hmm. article 6 so you know this is a law that companies like so much they proliferated it to every country in the world The, the mexican congress on july the 1st passed a new copyright law under their obligations for the u.s mexico canada agreement that's trump's uh Mm -hmm. new nafta nafta 2 that just imported all of this stuff from American copyright law without even the very minimal protections that American law has. And thankfully, we at Electronic Frontier Foundation and some of our allies in Mexico, like Derechos Digitales and Red, Creative Commons Mexico, we were able to get the Human Rights Commission to refer this to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is evaluating whether the law is even constitutional. Hmm. Uh, and they can they can throw the law. The Mexican legal system has some real advantages over the American hmm. one. The big one being that the Supreme Court can throw out a law for being unconstitutional, even if no plaintiff appears with standing oh, to challenge the law, which because the Human Rights Commission can just, which is this notionally arm's length body. Although every time I say that on Twitter, Mexican <laughs> activists go like, yeah, notionally arm's length, but activists are currently occupying their offices because they're letting the government take a walk in a bunch of other human rights abuses. But at least as like notionally arm's length, they can consider any legislation that Congress passes huh. and say that we think that violates human rights. Supreme Court, why don't you have a look at it? And the Supreme Court gets to gets to rule without any plaintiff coming forward. It's pretty wild. Interesting. So before we move on to the Apple Epic thing, I wanted to touch but one more point on the uh, uh, the whole DRM thing. And and to bring it home is like as far as you mentioned that it was even if it was for something that the copyright allows breaking it was a thing. And and for me, where I used to run into that was I wanted to make a copy of my DVDs. I bought it. I have the DVD. I have the movie. And of course it has all sorts of crap in it. And all I want is the movie. Like I don't want to watch previews. I don't want to watch the mandatory FBI and whatever warnings. I just want the movie and I own it. Right. So I should be able to under fair use, make a copy of that for myself. But this law blocked that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is that by, by not, tying it like there's actually this is not a bug in the law it's a feature because it would be really easy to write a version of this law that lets you do that which is to say that 
all of this law only applies when there is a nexus with a copyright infringement, right? When copyright infringement takes place, breaking the DRM is illegal. When no copyright infringement takes place, breaking the DRM is not illegal, right? That's that's mm. all you have to say. But of course, that was never the intention because <laughs> it was passed to allow console vendors to charge uh, premiums to their independent software vendors to, to have a monopoly over the uh, over the market for their games or, or monopsony in respect of their software developers. Monopsony is when there's one buyer. Uh, monopoly is when there's one seller. Or more colloquially, a monopsony is when there's a buyer that has a lot of buying power and a monopoly is when there's a market dominated by a few sellers or there's only one seller available to you in one context or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the other one was, was to stop you from deregionalizing your DVD player. Mm. And, you know, talk about a thing that's not a, a copyright violation, right? right? I go into a store it like yeah i understand universal wants to sell this cheaply in india and expensively in america but if i happen to be on vacation in india and i walk into a real dvd store and buy the licensed dvd that universal india had sold through their retailer at the price that they asked and i bring it home to los angeles and stick it on my dvd player and watch it that is the literal opposite of copyright <laughs> infringement right that is like me paying the name right. price for the copyrighted work and using it in the way that it is intended to be used right there's like it doesn't even get into fair use, right? It's right. just use. <laughs> right. It's just just use. And so the whole point was to move beyond copyright as a set of trade-offs between the priorities of um, creativity, which both involves roping in or, or regimenting who can use what work, but also permitting work to be used. You know, you think about things like Edgar Allan Poe inventing the mystery story with murders in the Rue Morgue. Mm. And, you know, maybe we could incentivize people to invent more genres if we gave them control over it. But do we really want the, like, distant heirs of Edgar Allan Poe deciding who can write a mystery story because we made that his property? So, you know, there's always this balance. And rather than having this balance that Congress strikes, which maybe they'll get right and maybe they'll get wrong. I think they get it wrong a lot. Instead, we move that calculation about what is and isn't needed by a creative industry and now by any industry that makes a thing with software in it to the boardroom and rather than have it be a democratically elected lawmakers who make that Mm. call and a court who decides whether or not Mm -hmm. you have violated the law set out by the democratically elected lawmakers you have executives who make the call and software that decides whether you violated the rule. And so that is like a completely different arrangement. And it marked a huge sea change. And the reason it took so long for us to figure out what had changed was it took a long time for embedded uh, systems to get cheap. So one of the first cases about this was when um, Lexmark, which was then a division of IBM, sued a Taiwanese company called Static Controls for refilling toner cartridges. And they said you had to uh, reverse engineer the 12 byte long mini program in our embedded system that marked when a cartridge had run out and you had to uh, you had to reverse engineer it so that you could reset it to full cartridge and the court said you don't have a, a lock that's defending a copyrighted work and they said yes we do the 12 byte program and the court said 12 bytes it's not even a haiku right it's not <laughs> right. it's not a copyrightable work code can be copyrighted but 12 bytes of code is not copyrighted right. and now that's not an issue right like the soc you get by the gross lot from AliExpress at 22 cents each has got like an entire Linux distro and busy box right, right, right. running on it. Right. You know, like they, they, it's just, it's just, it's like there, there are no devices that have logic in them that don't have enough logic to rise to the standard yeah. 
uh, contemplated in the DMCA, which means that there are no devices with a chip in them that cannot be designed by their manufacturers to constrain the conduct of competitors and critics and customers. Yeah. Okay, so with all that as foundation, let's talk about uh, Apple and Epic. Catch us up to like the last few months. This is all kind of unfolded over the last few months. I mean, Epic and Apple have been working together for a long time, and then something changed, and Epic decided they they didn't like this thirty percent, and they kind of took measures. So catch us up, like just the facts of the case. What's happened? Where are we now? And how do we get where we are now? Well, I'll tell you what I know about it, which is that Epic, you know, they make Fortnite. They also make a lot of other stuff, including some really important SDKs for for 3D graphics and 3D games. They, uh, as you say, had done the standard deal with Apple, which is a 30 percent, 30 percent of the the gross revenues generated by the app, including the sale price of the app and subsequent sales like in-game items. And they had acceded to Apple's terms, which required them to not offer players an alternative payment system right. within the, the their software. And they didn't like it. And who would? Right. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a that's a that's a big piece to take, thirty percent. You know, I'm do I've I've got um audiobook that we talked about attack surface i'm doing the audiobook for it independently because i won't let amazon put drm on it so no one wants to pay me for the rights because audible owns it 30 percent is a giant piece of my margin Mm. right like yeah i have no no marginal cost once once it's in production but when you add up like all the people who get a have their hands out if i give 30 percent to a retailer that's a lot Mm. and especially if i go through an intermediary that's a lot so like if they're going to say to say they have in-game creators we're going to make things and then give them to them to sell. And then Apple is the only people who processes the transaction and they take a 30% VIG. Like imagine if the restaurant you ate at when you paid with an Amex, Amex took 30%, right? That is a mm-hmm. huge transaction processing fee. That's not, a, it's not like a, a commission, mere commission on a sale, right? That's a, that's a transaction processing fee. And Apple, you know, has also uh, arbitrarily exercised its power to uh, block out apps or, or lock out apps over the years. So they've right. done things like taking away apps like Hey, Basecamp, and so on, which because they uh, were front ends in part for a website. So like some of what the app did was just let you browse the, the vendor's website. And if you dug deep enough in the website, you could find a, a way on the website to buy a thing with their own payment processor with mm. Stripe or whatever. And Apple's like, well, you know, like you gave, a- like, so under these terms, I mean, it's it's ridiculous, right? And it shows you how it's very um, selectively enforced. But if the idea is that if you have an app where if you tap long enough, you find a link to a credit card form that Stripe processes, then you you are immediately turfed out of the app store. Then any app that incorporates access to the web Hmm. because you know you're only half a dozen clicks for you're never more than half a dozen clicks from something that that does this you know google search will eventually take you to a stripe page so this is this is the uh this is the issue and and apple has claimed that it does this to prevent financial fraud and it's claimed that it does this to ensure a um a seamless quality of service and so on and there is a kind of apple customer who says, well, that's great. I like Apple doing that because it gives me a sense of confidence. And even if the vendors have to charge extra in order to make up the 30% commission, and so it's priced into my price that everything costs more, that's okay with me. And then there's a kind of customer who says, that's okay with me and it should be okay for anyone. right? That the, the people who are Apple customers 
who don't like that arrangement aren't really Apple customers. <laughs> They're, you know, if you didn't want to use your property the way you wanted to use it, you shouldn't have bought property that came with these restrictions from Apple because Apple told you what the deal was originally. Mm -hmm. And and this is like Edison saying, if you buy my record, you can only play it on my record player. It's not really how property works, right? Like if, if the whole point of this is that we're going to analogize copyright to property by calling it intellectual property. <laughs> well, then we, we have this, this contest in property rights because property, that, that which I own, my phone, which is like unambiguously mine, just like my books are and just like, you know, my, my TV is and my washing machine and all those other things – my thing is mine. And, you know, the, the vendor's pleasure is not the thing that I have to think about hmm. when I decide how I want to use it. That's really just my business. And this, this strain of fandom for Apple that says that, I guess you don't deserve to be an Apple customer <laughs> if you want to use a store that, doesn't, that Apple hasn't approved, is, it's, it's a weird argument. And it's an argument with consequences. I don't know if you've ever encountered Bruce Schneier's idea of feudal security. Have you ever heard him talk about this? Uh, I've followed it a lot, but I don't recall that one. So he talks about this, that like in a world in which vendors kind of aren't really held to account if their devices are insecure and in which governments, you know, routinely like hack devices or hoard zero days, mm -hmm. that you have to find a vendor who is like your feudal lord, someone who's very powerful whose interests you believe will be co-terminal with your own, right? Will overlap with your own. And that in defending their own interests, they'll, they'll defend yours. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Apple and Microsoft both make a big deal out of their privacy policies, yeah. right? We, we don't sell your data to, to advertisers. Right. We've got a different business model. And that is great when your interests are co-terminal with them. But sometimes your interests aren't co-terminal with them. So like Microsoft is not committed to privacy as a good, Microsoft is committed to privacy as a marketing right. tactic. And you know that because Microsoft is selling facial recognition tools to ICE. And so if the whole idea is that people just deserve to be private, they wouldn't make tools that invaded your privacy, right? If the idea is people, if we tell people we respect their privacy, we'll sell more devices, well, then they will respect your privacy in realms where they think it increases right. their sales and they will abuse your privacy in realms where they think it will not increase your sales. I mean, ICE doesn't care if you're a Microsoft user when they <laughs> use facial recognition tools on you from Microsoft. It's not like it's not like if you've bought a fully licensed copy of Windows, the facial recognition software stops working. Right. And by the same token, Apple, because they get a veto over which software you can install, governments that can reach Apple, right? Governments of countries right. where Apple operates can give Apple orders about which software they're allowed to sell. And Apple's choice is respect their users' privacy and leave the country or respect the government and take the orders. And in China, the Chinese government ordered Apple to remove all the working VPNs and other privacy tools so that they could conduct mass surveillance of iPhone users as part of their overall mass surveillance of Chinese people whose uh, consequences include Falun Gong members being arrested and imprisoned so that their organs could, organs could be harvested and given mm. to party members, which is the thing a human rights tribunal uh, in London upheld the same year Apple made this call, and so that a million Uyghur people could be sent to concentration camps, and not just Uyghurs, other, other Turkic Muslims, mm. and many of whom were subjected to slave labor, torture, involuntary sterilization, and a host of other evils, right? 
Now, the fact that Apple enabled the privacy invasion of those Apple users, because remember, you know, when you take away the uh, ability of an iPhone user to download a VPN, it's the only people who suffer are Apple users, right? Mm. It's not like people who own Samsung's destiny changes based on what's in Apple's (laughs) App Store, right? It's only like by definition, it is just iPhone users, iOS users who who are affected by this. Their interests are no longer coterminal with Apple. And the problem of the feudal system where the Lord builds a wall to keep the barbarians out is it keeps you from leaving. <laughs> right. Right. And if the Lord has to contend with the possibility that you'll go somewhere else, or better yet, if the Lord has to contend, contend with the possibility that you will demand different choices and manifest those demands by changing how you behave, whether or not you're within the feudal system's walls, then the Lord has to find a different equilibrium, right? The Mm. Lord is playing a different game because it's no longer what I say goes. There are consequences. And those consequences aren't just that you lose customers, which is a thing that if you're a Uyghur, you can do. You can switch to Android and sideload a VPN. It may be that you keep your customers, but they start using another app store. Right, and now you've got fragmentation to deal with. Maybe uh, now they start buying your top-selling apps from someone other than them, and so on. Now, one of the ways you see this equilibrium playing out now, where where, you know when when a company appoints itself the uh, executioner of which apps you can install, and then puts itself in reach of a government that might want to use that power, is you get Donald Trump last week saying, "Oh, by the way, you've got to remove TikTok and WeChat." Right now, a judge has stopped it, and he, you know, he managed to do a sweetheart deal with his buddy and major donor Larry Ellison right. for Oracle to acquire him, whatever. But you know, that is not a thing you can do, or it's a thing you can order, but it doesn't matter, right? It's a ordering someone to remove something from an app store when the customer can just switch to another app store. Right. It has it. It has very little bearing on the customer. The customer still has to find out that the other app store exists and has to install it and whatever. But it has it has very little bearing on them, comparatively speaking, relative to I order you to remove an app, and anyone who figures out how to reinstall that app commits a felony. Mm. That is uh, that is, and anyone who helps them or makes a tool commits a felony. And anyone who publishes information that might assist in making that tool commits a felony, that arrives at a very different equilibrium, one that's very different for corporate power and for state power. Right. So Apple or Epic at this point decides that they're, they're going to sue. Actually, the first thing they decided they're, they're going to do is they're going to obviously go against both the spirit and the letter of the contract they signed and create an app store, knowing very well the, how Apple is going to respond. And of course they did. They pulled the app from the store. And they immediately had a PR campaign ready to go. I mean, so there's, there's a lot of really sure. nuanced things. And I don't think, and I want to get into some of that because I, I, I'm not sure Epic was the poster child for, for this effort. But let's look at Apple first, just from a devil's advocate perspective. So what Apple's saying, of course, is some of the things you've already said. But they're also you know, like, look, we've, we've, we've given you free software tools. We've given you free software development kits. We've, you know, done some degree of automated security testing on your behalf. We've managed this massive distribution system. We've spent gobs of money on marketing to, uh, to get you a massive customer base. So what if 30% is too high, like, what is that? What is that worth? What would, what would be a reasonable fee for that? Cut it off right there, and we'll pick it up exactly at that point next week in part two of my interview with Corey. 
there's some there's some really interesting stuff that we're going to talk about next week, including defining the term chickenization. You're going to want to hear that. So if you haven't already, subscribe and you will not miss it. And this story is actually still evolving. There's things going on since I've interviewed Corey that I'll talk about and I'll kind of wrap that up uh, at the end of the next interview because things are still evolving. I'll probably even learn more between now and then. One more shout out. And I actually meant to do this last week. Uh, if you have not watched the Netflix uh, documentary called The Social Dilemma, I highly recommend it. It's a little bit dramatic, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a documentary with sort of a, a fictional story woven throughout that kind of brings home the points. And that fictional story is a little heavy handed, a little bit dramatic. Uh, nevertheless, it's, it's really important to watch if you're a social media user at all. Actually, even if you're not a social media user, this is an important documentary for our times. And it's something that we should all be aware of. So definitely check that out called The Social Dilemma. It's on Netflix. All right, time is running out to get a free copy of my book. Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, the fourth edition, has hit the shelves. It's got 170 tips in it. It's over 400 pages long. It really has you covered. You can buy it online. It hit the virtual shelves a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Amazon.com, Apress.com, Barnes & Noble, all the usual spots. Or if you enter in the next six days, you could get a free copy of the book. I am giving away 15 total copies of the book, five signed paperback copies and 10 digital PDF copies. But time is running out. You've got until 11.59 p.m. on Saturday, October 3rd. That's Eastern Time. And there are multiple ways for you to enter. In fact, just by being a podcast listener or and or being a newsletter subscriber, you've got other ways to uh, to stuff the ballot box. You can enter multiple times, and you can even go more than that. You could, if you refer people to uh, refer people to the contest, you get points for that too. So, lots of ways to enter, and the winners will be picked. They will be announced here on this show on the next podcast next Monday morning. So, when you come to listen to part two of my interview with Corey Docto, I will be announcing the fifteen winners. To sign up, it's easy. You just go to uh, Rafflecopter, uh, but instead of trying to give you that long uh, URL, I'll just give you a nice short one that you can easily remember. Uh, it's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash firewalls four. That's F-I-R-E-W-A-L-L-S and the number four, all lowercase. You can also get that in the show notes for the podcast, and you can go to my blog at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Uh, there's an article there on how to enter with the links as well. Now, Rafflecopter may ask you to create an account. I suppose they probably have to so they can contact you. And I recognize a lot of people don't want to give their email addresses out. I don't either. Uh, so you might look for a uh, sign-in with Apple option, in which case you can set up a private email address through that sign-up procedure. Uh, or you could try Firefox Relay. Same kind of a thing. You can basically set up a temporary email account that you give to them that will forward to your real email account behind the scenes, but they don't get your real email. And if any time you get too much crap from them, you can just cut off that email address without affecting your real email address. If you want to check that out, it's relay.firefox.com. And obviously that could be useful in a lot of cases. Just I would only use it really for cases, though, where it's kind of a one-off thing. Uh, because if you ever need to have further correspondence with somebody, then it gets kind of tricky when it's like, well, okay, what's your email address? And you might have to go look it up, and it's something weird, and... Um, so it's really good for these things where like somebody forces you to sign up for a one-time thing and you don't want to give away your email address. All right. That wraps it up for this week. Tune in next week for part two of my interview with Corey. And if anything, the second part is even more interesting than the first. So if you like this one, you're going to love the next one. Uh, it is that time. It's uh, time to vote. If you have not done so, uh, certainly if you've not registered, hurry up and get registered because deadlines are probably already passing. Uh, and some of you probably can even vote now. 
if you want help with any of this stuff, uh, there's lots of websites you can go to, but the easiest one probably is vote.org. They've got all the information you need, including how to register, how to get your mail-in ballot, all that good stuff. So please, uh, if you haven't, please do so. This is a really important year for this, not just at the presidential level, but all the way down the ticket. Get out there and make your voices heard. All right, that's it. Hope everybody out there is staying safe. Stay home when you can. Avoid crowds. Put on the mask. You know the usual. So until next week, stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Thank you.